Let's turn our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, and I promise we'll make some progress today. Let's hear the Word of God. Ephesians chapter 1, we'll begin in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been looking at Paul's introductory remarks to Ephesus and to the group of churches to whom this letter was first sent. I think the Holy Spirit wanted us to read it too and to believe that Paul, through the Holy Spirit, is speaking to us by this letter this morning. And in the salutation, the author, that is the human author, Paul, comes to describe himself by his name, Paul, and then as an apostle of Christ. Secondly, he identifies those whom he's greeting. These are Christian people he's writing to, people he describes as saints and faithful, and also in Christ. And then third comes a formula of salutation, the words of verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's absolutely vital when we read the Scriptures to remind ourselves that every word of Scripture is without error. Every word of Scripture has been breathed out by God. Therefore, every word of Scripture demands and deserves our full attention. That's the premise of our studies. And in this salutation, uh, we must take a look at an overview of the salutation. So I'm going to make two points about the salutation as a whole, but don't be deceived into thinking that that's the sermon. The sermon points are later. So the salutation, let's look at that first of all. I'm going to say two things about the salutation. Number one, that it's a Christianized greeting. And number two, that it's an apostolic blessing. First of all, it's a Christianized greeting. Because the language that Paul uses is language with which the people of his day were familiar, whether they were Christians or non-Christians, whether they were Jews or Gentiles, wherever they were in the world, they would be familiar with the language that's being used here. And that's a sign, of course, of God's common grace, something There are things that people do by nature because they've been built into their nature by their maker, by God. And so it's natural, isn't it, that when we meet someone we know on the street, we we say hello to them, we stop to pass the time of day with them. Uh, In a social event, we're introduced to someone, we, we greet them, we salute them, to use the old word. When we write a letter, we send our greetings, or at least we used to, less likely by email, of course. Well wishes, in other words, are universal. They were universal in Paul's day. The Gentiles, the non-Jews of Paul's day, would wish each other good health or joy or peace. Uh, I greeted a Muslim man the other day in a coffee shop near where we live, and, and at the beginning of our conversation, I greeted him, Assalamu alaikum, uh, alaikum. Got that around the wrong way. That's, that's what I said first. And then after we'd had a conversation, I walked away, I said, Alaikum, Assalamu 
peace be upon you. In greeting a Jew, as I did this morning, I, I spoke to one of the, the people who go to our local synagogue and asked him if he would convey to the, to the rabbi our, our prayers and concern and sympathy for people in the congregation in the synagogue who have lost loved ones through the violence in the Middle East. And we greeted one another, and I began by saying shalom and ended by saying shalom. I nearly said shalom Shabbat, but then realized it's not his Shabbat, it's the Christian one. So I, I called myself to attention at that point. And when you look in the Bible and you look really back into history, for example, the time of Joseph in the Old Testament, the Egyptians uh, greeted Joseph's family by saying to them, peace be to you. When Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon is writing to all the nations, he begins his epistle by saying, peace be multiplied to you. When Artaxerxes of Persia is writing his letter to his little empire, he salutes them with the words, peace, at such a time as this, Ezra chapter 4. And when David sends his servant Nabal a kind message. He instructs his servant who's conveying the message on how he should greet him. Greet him in my name, he says. And in the original it reads, ask him in my name of peace. In other words, tell him, give him the peace. Like we used to do when we said to each other, how do you do? How are you? Not simply hi, hiya. If you're a teenager, the third one's what you do. David expands this, and he says this, Thus you shall say to one who lives in prosperity, Peace be to you and to your house, and peace be to all you have, that is, all your family. And what we learn from this usage We might call it secular usage, if you will, although secular is a modern word, uh, which had a different meaning even in the Middle Ages, but a non-Christian or a worldly kind of usage. What is behind the usages is the wish that the person we've met or the person we're saying goodbye to would experience good, good things and flourishing in their life. In fact, Jesus, when he sends his disciples, and we're his disciples, out into the world, he says, when someone takes you into their home, salute them and say to them, peace be to this house. Jesus builds it in to our ordinary everyday interactions with men and women. This is the point. These are duties of common interaction common acquaintanceship, common friendship. And the the reason they're common is that nature taught the Gentiles. Nature teaches men and women simply by being men and women that this is something you should do. This is something you should do. The church, on the other hand, whether it's the church of the Jews or or the church of uh, the New Testament, we're taught by religion 
that this is the way you should behave. So whether it's by nature or by religion, this is the way you should behave. In the time of Paul, the Greeks saluted one another with the word kaira, which means grace. The Latins greeted one another with salutum, which means health and salvation be to you. In the English language, we've played around with various words to to say the same thing. The word greetings, for example, all hail. We don't use that today. If I come up to you after the service and say, all hail, you would be wondering what was going on. But that's that's where the translation of the angel's words to Mary come from. When the angel comes to tell her of what was conceived in her womb, he comes to her and says, Hail Mary. It's a greeting. It's a warm greeting. It's a a nice thing. And when Jesus comes to his disciples after his resurrection, he says to them, Peace to you. Now, what's the application of all of that? I want you to get the application of all that so that you know it's an application. Uh, And it's this. Christianity does not abolish civilities between people. Instead, it elevates civilities between people. Interacting with people in these ways that I've described, in these greetings, salutations, and so on that I've described, is in fact the proper way both to be human and to be Christian. We as Christians are not to be less civil, less warm, less friendly, less kind than the people of the world are. Thomas Goodwin, a a reformer uh, of the late, of the high reform uh, period, says this, Christianity does not abolish, but spiritualizes and improves civility, and humanity. It spiritualizes, in other words, puts it deep down in your gut, in your spirit. It improves civility and humanity. So just at a very human level, our greetings, respects, condolences, congratulations, and best wishes should be warm and sincere and indiscriminate to young and old to rich and poor, to pagan and Christian, a matter of general courtesy and good behavior. And we should be like this, not only in the world, we should be like this in the church. And we should go away this morning contemplating the Pauline instruction, which is, is ignored Completely, it's very, Even the people who are assiduous and picking out bits of Paul that suit their particular agenda, ignore this one when Paul says to us, greet one another with a holy kiss. He does not mean, by the way, a strong handshake, which is what you'll get at the door as you're leaving if you come out and shake my hand. We should be like this in church respectful and loving, and even be prepared to give the kiss of peace. So it's a Christian, Christianized greeting. But we must go further. These words of Paul in verse 2 are an apostolic 
blessing, or as the Puritans would say, apostolical blessing. We we can distinguish, for example, between Paul and the Christian. We've done that already. We had a whole sermon on Paul, and then we had a sermon on Paul as an apostle of Jesus Christ. There are two reasons that I didn't give when we were dealing with that. The two reasons I give today are that the apostles are the patriarchs of the church. Paul will later say that they are uh, the foundation, along with the prophets of the Old Testament, the foundation of the church. In the book of Revelation in 22, we find the patriarchs of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, the patriarchs of Israel and the apostles of the church in the foundation and in the walls of New Jerusalem. New Jerusalem, the church that comes down out of heaven from God as a bride adorned for her husband, the church of Jesus Christ is fortified by and built on the patriarchs of Israel and the apostles of the church. And there's a striking thing here. We talk about the 12 patriarchs of Israel and the 12 apostles of the Lamb. But there were 13 tribes because Joseph didn't become one of the tribes. His two sons did, making the number 13, but we still only talk about the 12 tribes of Israel. But there were 13 tribes. And although we talk about the 12 apostles of the Lamb, and there only were 12 apostles of the Lamb, nonetheless, in reality, there were 13, Paul's number 13. So there are parallels between Israel and the church. So the apostles then are the patriarchs of the church. They are our fathers. Just as we talk about, the Jews talked about the, the uh, sons of uh, Israel, so we talk about the apostles of Christ. They are our fathers in the faith. But secondly, apostles are the priests of the church. We have looked uh, from time to time at John 17 and There Jesus acts as our great high priest and he prays prays for himself. He prays for his fellow priests, the apostles. And then he prays for the church, the Israel of God. And he says it's through their witness, the witness of the apostles, that you and I come to believe. And Paul puts himself in the role of a father when he's writing to the church in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, he says this, Through you, though you may have doubtless many guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And so Paul raises this lovely language of greeting up to the lofty level of blessing upon the people of God. And you see the connection with the spiritual father and the blessing when Paul writes to Timothy, to Timothy, my own son, in the faith, grace and peace. But particularly, there is a link between this blessing that Paul gives to the churches, and it's used widely in his letters, and the blessing that I will pronounce at the end of the service from Numbers chapter 6, the blessing that God commanded to be spoken over Israel. You know the blessing, the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord be gracious to you, the Lord give you peace. And in this way, we're told, we put God's name 
upon the people. We put God's name upon the people of Israel, and he will bless them. He will bless them. And you can see the elements of that priestly blessing and this blessing pronounced over the Christian congregation and people as he writes to them. The words in numbers are these, the word gracious and the word peace. The words here are the words grace and peace. So like an overture to a great orchestral work, these two words of blessing capture the major motifs and themes of this work of the apostle. They are themes of every blessing to be declared upon the people of God. They are summed up in grace and peace. And it is the solemn duty of every minister of the word to declare this, this blessing upon the church. It's fitting, for example, that those who preach the word of God should proclaim the absolution and forgiveness of sins after confession of sin, which we do. It is also, it is also fitting that those who are responsible for the declaration of the word of God should declare to you the blessing of God grace, and peace. Now we're ready to look at the blessing. Three points, and you will be surprised how quickly we get through them. First of all, the content of the blessing. There's one gift in two parts. The first is grace. How do we define grace? Well, grace is the free favor of God. Here, we also talk about grace being an attribute of God. This is not the attribute of God that's in mind. The attribute of God, the grace that is in God himself, is incommunicable. We can't, we can't get it ourselves. This is a gift given by God. To proclaim grace to God's people is to wish for God's people the greatest good and the most excellent thing that can be either sought after or received. It is the favor and love of God bestowed upon us poor creatures. Jeremiah sums it up, to give you a future and a hope. That's what grace and peace give to us. When God is gracious to us, His grace by nature is the first cause and source of all good and the fount of every blessing that comes into our lives. He pours all his purposes so that he might give to you as his people the riches of his grace. That's the efficient cause. And the glory of his grace, that is the reward, the final thing. When we enter into glory and see him face to face, that is the final cause behind his blessing. And grace, grace is unmerited. It is boundless. It is free at the point of delivery. It is not a wage that we earn or a prize that we deserve, or a favor that he does us. Grace is freely given by God without any external 
pressure being placed upon God. And it includes everything we need for our salvation. Now, somebody asked me, why do you quote the fathers and the medievals in church? Because we're a church that believes in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We're not a sect. Therefore, those old boys are our old boys too. And one of the greatest of the old, old boys is Thomas Aquinas. Let me read from his commentary on Ephesians at this point. He mentions, quote, he mentions grace, meaning justification for sin. Justification for sin. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and fears that grace relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. But the grace of God is not only for the hour you first believed. See who this grace, this blessing, is being proclaimed to. Not to the seeker, not to the person who's in transition to become a Christian. It's proclaimed to you, to you who are saints and faithful in Christ Jesus, to you, the church. You need grace. There will never be a moment in your life or mine until we're in glory when we will not need the grace of God. And there will not be a nanosecond in our life where that grace will not be available to us. When we're asked for it or when it's pronounced to us. So grace. And secondly, peace. Let me go back to that Thomas Aquinas quotation. He refers to peace, uh, to, to the second word in the, in the passage. Peace is the calmness of mind, re- of reconciliation to God in regard to the freedom of punishment due to sin. Now listen to David Dixon, a leading reformer of the high period of Reformed. Here's what he says. Paul here wishes them the special fruit of this grace. That is to wit, peace. Peace or all things that might conduce to their happiness. But especially, remember that Thomas quotation, especially quietness of mind. Thomas said calmness of mind arising from the redemption of Christ, which would assure them of reconciliation with God. Thomas said, reconciliation to God. Reconciliation with God. You see, in the Middle Ages and at the time of the Reformed, these words are pointing us to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace also is the last blessing to be bestowed upon us. In Psalm 37, the end of that man is peace. Isaiah 57, uh, the righteous, the justified person, when they die, is taken away from calamity and enters into peace. Rest in peace, we say, when someone has died. Out of the hope of this promise that they enter into the peace and joy of the Lord.
Right now, though, we can say that the whole kingdom of God consists in righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. Right now, we can say that our sanctification is a word, a work rather, of peace. Paul says, that the very God of peace sanctify you, holy. That means totally, finally. Joy in the Holy Ghost and communion with God is described as peace which passes all understanding. Now you ask, why do I need grace and peace? Well, all of us need grace and peace because by nature we're rebels. We're rebels in God's world. If you have access to an intelligent means of communication and information regarding what's going on in the world, you're lucky. Uh, But recently, the intelligent communications have been telling us that the makers of artificial intelligence globally have been giving vent to their fears that their creations might turn against the human race. Well, they might, they might not. But let me tell you this morning, the creator of real natural intelligent life had his creation turn against him. Humanity, if given the choice, would murder its maker. That's what the cross of Jesus represents. Humans are haters of God. That's why sometimes they can become haters of themselves. They hate the way God's made them. They hate the way life has turned out for them and so on. And we can become haters of other people who are image bearers of God. So humans are at war with one another, war with themselves. Our consciences on the inside bring to our mind the law of God and we are at conflict within about what things to do and what things to say and so on. We place ourselves at the top, top of the tree. We, we look on ourselves as if we're something important. But we're in rebellion against the God who made us. But the wonderful thing about grace is it does not abandon us to our fate. While we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So that's the content of the blessing. The author of the blessing comes next. The author of the blessing from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. The word Lord there is the Greek translation of Yahweh in the Old Testament. In fact, you'll look in that, if you look at the author of the blessing there and compare it with the, uh, the Numbers chapter 6 reference, the blessing that I'm going to pronounce at the end of the service, you'll find that there in Numbers we have Yahweh mentioned three times. Yahweh bless you. Yahweh be gracious to you. Yahweh give you peace. Here in verse 2 of Ephesians, we have, first of all, Yahweh, who God, who is God the Father. We have Jesus as Lord, Yahweh. And we have Jesus described as Savior, 
which means Yahweh saved. There's a threefold use of Yahweh in that sentence. The Father's called the God of peace in Hebrews. In 1 Peter 5, he's called the God of grace. Jesus in Isaiah 9 is called the Prince of Peace. And in Colossians 1 is said to be the one who made peace, reconciliation, by the blood of his cross. Paul can even end one of his letters saying, by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, grace and peace derive from God the Father and the Son, which raises a question. All the external works of God are indivisible and undivided. The Holy Trinity always acts as the Holy Trinity. So where is the Holy Spirit? Where is he? It's a good question to ask. I knew that you would ask it. I anticipated that you would. Well, what are we taught in the Bible? We're taught the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. You can't have the Father without the Spirit. You can't have the Son without the Spirit. You can't have the Father and the Son without the Spirit. The Spirit proceeds. The Spirit is the love between the Father and the Son and the Son for the Father. So where is the Holy Spirit? Well, the Father's here and the Son's here in this text. And the Holy Spirit is the executive of the Godhead. I said the works of the Trinity are undivided. So in Revelation chapter 1, we see all persons actually mentioned. In verse 4, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. That's the Father. Grace and peace from the seven spirits who are before the throne. There's the Holy Spirit in his divine perfection of being. Grace and peace from Jesus Christ. I said that the Holy Spirit is a bond between the Father and the Son. He's understood whenever they are mentioned. So whenever they are mentioned, he is understood to be there. He is never anywhere else. He is part of the Trinity. Not a part of the Trinity. Trinity doesn't have parts. He is in the Holy Trinity. But he is also, in this text, in the two major words we've been looking at, grace and peace. These words are appropriated to him. He is the giver of grace. He delivers it, grace and peace. And I think you can see this in Romans chapter 8, for example. <clears throat> what, what, what does Paul say? Grace and peace to you from God, our Father. <clears throat> well, how do we know God's our Father? Here's what Paul says in Romans 8. When we cry, Abba, Father, that is when we pray, Father, it is the Spirit himself Bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So there's the first evidence of the Holy Spirit there. You use the word Father. Or Romans 5. We've thought of grace and peace pointing us to justification, which gives us peace with God and so on. Here's what Romans 5 says. Since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Yahweh, Jesus Christ. Through the Holy Spirit, we have obtained access to this grace in which we now stand. So how do I have peace with God? 
peace with God. There's the word peace. How do I have the grace of God to stand justified before him, reconciled to him? Here's the answer. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which was given to us. The Holy Spirit is the cause of our faith, the cause of our comfort. And it's this Holy Spirit that teaches us that God is our Father, not, not a concept, not a, not a letter X for an unknown quantity, not a force. He is the Father. He is my Father. He is your Father. He is our Father in creation, but supremely in Christ. The Father acts with the Son in the Holy Spirit for our salvation. Well, the content and the author, and now thirdly, the mediator of the blessing. And by the way, I need to make a confession here. I meant to make it earlier. These three points are Thomas Aquinas' points. But he's old enough and he doesn't have any patent on his work or anything, so but I, I thought I should tell you that. The mediator of the blessing. Now we've seen, this is why we must pay attention to words here. We've seen the Lord Jesus, that is Yahweh Jesus. We've seen the Father, who is Yahweh, we know that from other scriptures. And indirectly, we've seen the Holy Spirit, who is the divine source and fountain from which all blessings flow. But the name Lord, Yahweh, is then followed by the name Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus is another use of the word Yahweh. Yahweh saves, but it was the name given to him as a little baby in his mother's womb, and then the name given to him when he grew up and was known to people. Christ is also a human title, job description, the Messiah. So here the word Lord doesn't just appear, apply to the Father and to the Spirit who are the author of our blessedness and our eternal happiness. When we see the words Lord Jesus Christ, we're being pointed also to his human nature and we must look to his human nature as man and as mediator. Paul says there's one God One mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. We need a man to mediate between us and God. But any ordinary human figure doesn't count. Couldn't do it. The man who mediates between us and God is a real man, but the person the man is is the Son of God. And as a man, he is without sin. As a man, he is perfect. As a man... He is the anointed prophet, priest, and king. He teaches us final truth. He he comes and he he offers the, the final sacrifice. He's the priest. He offers himself to be the final sacrifice. He ascends to heaven. He goes into the holy of holies. He opens up the way for you and I to follow into the presence of God. He does this on our behalf. He took our nature... He became the second and last Adam. He obeyed on our behalf. He suffered on our behalf. 
And in consequence, both his righteousness, that's the holiness of his life, and his sacrifice, his bearing the sentence prescribed on Adam and his succeeding race, wages of sin is death, he took that on himself. Both his righteousness and his sacrifice are counted to us, credited to us. Therefore, we stand before God free of sin, reconciled. All the language we've seen so far in this text. And it is the work of the Holy Spirit to lead us out of ourselves into the grace of God the Father through the peace and satisfaction won for us by Jesus the Savior. The Holy Spirit is the efficient cause, the efficient cause of you believing, of your faith. He gave you the faith to believe. The Holy Spirit is the revealer of this twofold gift. The apostle who's writing this is the Holy Spirit's instrument so that what Paul writes is really the Holy Spirit writing and speaking to us. And so we have to say, as we have to say with all of the New Testament scriptures, indeed all of scripture, the Holy Spirit is all over the place. Why do we never pray to the Spirit? Here's a reason. It's because by him you pray. Without him you wouldn't pray. He's the one who prompts you to pray. And it is his office to make prayers themselves which you and I offer up to God. He gives you those words. You say, but my words are often stumbling and contradictory and so forth. He's given you those words. He'll translate it. It'll be a perfect prayer when he translates those words he's given you, the prompting that he's made on your heart to pray. You must pray about this. You must bring it to God. He will take that and he will translate it into a perfect prayer because he knows the mind of God and he knows your heart. And he knows what you need more than you know what you need. We must trust him to do that for us. And he is willing to communicate to us the grace and peace that we need. Yes, us, you and me, all of us. The best Christian needs this blessing of grace and peace. This is what Christ came to accomplish through his blood and the satisfaction that he alone procures so that we might have peace with God. We need it for that. We need the Holy Spirit for that daily work of cleansing our hearts and purifying our minds so that we might understand and know God. We need the Holy Spirit for our acceptance in God's sight as his saints and as his faithful ones. And as someone put it, when our guilts and doubts assail us, when our faith is mixed with unbelief, we need to hear the Spirit's voice speaking grace and peace to us once more. So seek God's favor. He's far more ready to give it to you than you are to ask him for it. 
Seek his pardon. He's, he's waiting to absolve you of your sin. Ask him to do so. But seek him as your beloved. As your beloved. Seek to be close to God. Seek to know him as your heavenly husband, the lover of your soul. Having not seen him, you love him and rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. And remember this, grace and peace culminate in glory. Glory. Face to face with Christ my Savior. Face to face, what will it be when with rapture I behold him, Jesus Christ, who died for me. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that with your Holy Spirit's help, we might grasp the joy of this salutation, that we might learn, Lord, how to be warm, open people, wishing others flourishing and peace and reconciliation in our everyday lives, Lord, in the office, in the factory, or wherever we are. But above all, Lord, to receive from you grace and peace as a spiritual blessing that will transform our lives. We pray this in Jesus' strong name. Amen.